Let's pray. Now, our Heavenly Father, like Abraham, we would sing your love forevermore and glory in the grace of our Redeemer. Father, we pray tonight that as we turn again to your word, you would direct our eyes heavenward and enable us to leave behind all worldly distractions in order for your glory to be front and center. Lord, help us, not for our sake, but the sake of him who loved us and gave himself for us, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. If on your shelves at home you don't have a copy of The Valley of Vision, buy it and then thank me later. The Valley of Vision is this compilation of Puritan prayers and I want to begin tonight by reading one of them to you. It's an unusual way to begin a sermon but you will see why I'm doing this in just a few moments. The prayer is called The Great God. And it goes like this, O fountain of all good, destroy in me every lofty thought, break pride to pieces and scatter it to the winds, annihilate each clinging shred of self-righteousness, implant in me true lowliness of spirit, abase me to self-loathing and self-abhorrence, open in me a fountain of penitential tears, break me, then bind me up. Thus will my heart be a prepared dwelling for my God. Then can the Father take up his abode in me. Then can the blessed Jesus come with healing in his touch. Then can the Holy Spirit descend in sanctifying grace. O Holy Trinity, three persons and one God, inhabit me a temple consecrated to thy glory. When thou art present, evil cannot abide. In thy fellowship is fullness of joy. Beneath thy smile is peace of conscience. By thy side no fears disturb, no apprehensions banish rest of mind. With thee my heart shall bloom with fragrance. Make me meet through repentance for thine indwelling. Nothing exceeds thy power. Nothing is too great for thee to do. Nothing too good for thee to give. Infinite is thy might. Boundless thy love. Limitless thy grace. Glorious thy saving name. Let angels sing for sinners repenting. Prodigals restored. Backsliders reclaimed. Satan's captives released. Blind eyes opened. Broken hearts bound up. The despondent cheered. The self-righteous stripped. The formalist driven from a refuge of lies, the ignorant enlightened, and saints built up in their holy faith, I ask great things of a great God. If your God is small, you will ask for small things. If your God is great, you will ask for great things. If your God is small, 
obstacles will look like dead ends. But if your God is great, then obstacles will look like steps that will elevate you to greater heights of victory and praise in God. A preacher said recently, your view of God is everything. And so I want to ask you this evening, how big is your God? How great is your God? Is God under the laws of nature like we are? Is your God bound by something external to himself like we are? Does your God need our permission to work and to move in the world? Is your God unaware of the future? Is God optimistic but not in control? Or is he actually, literally, and fully God from beginning to end? Your view of God is everything, bottom line. At the point of our passage, the passage that Mason read for us earlier is this, nothing is too hard for the Lord. And in Genesis chapter 18, God promises the impossible to Abraham and to Sarah for the very last time. When Abraham was still Abram, God promised him in Genesis chapter 12, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And then in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham said, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And then in chapter 17, in last week's passage, Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. But that hadn't happened yet. In fact, between chapters 16 and 17 are 13 silent years. But God repeats the old promise that we've already heard him make a number of times in this series. And he undergirds it. He supports it with that rhetorical question in verse 14 of chapter 18. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Answer, no. And tonight we're going to see, number one, the divine visit, and then number two, the divine promise. So number one, the divine visit. In verses one to eight, we have one of the most unusual narratives in the Old Testament, maybe in the entire Bible. Questions leap off the page, don't they, at almost every verse and word. These three men who appear at Abraham's tent, they're referred to as the Lord. So, 
Do we have here an incarnation of each member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit? Did Abraham know who he was dealing with? And if so, when? Immediately? Or a little bit later in the passage or in hindsight? And how did he know? And what was the purpose of the visit in the first place? Well, no, this is not an incarnation of each member of the Trinity. What we have here is an appearance of Yahweh accompanied by two angels. So the Lord Jesus Christ possibly be with Gabriel and Michael. And it certainly looks like Abraham knew almost immediately who would come to visit him because in verse 3 he uses a distinct name for God. And not only that, everything about his behavior tells us three guests have come to dinner that don't often come. Now hospitality wasn't is a, a pillar of Eastern culture, but running certainly wasn't, especially of men at this age and especially at this time of the day when the sun was at its highest. What was the point of the visit? Well, to that answer that, we have to understand how unique this moment really was. Because whenever God appears to men in the Old Testament and food is involved, the food is offered as a sacrifice. The Lord smells the aroma, but he doesn't eat the food. And yet here God takes his place at Abraham's table and condescends to such a lowly level to say, Abraham, you are my friend. 2 Chronicles 20 verse 7 says, did you not our God drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And Isaiah 41 8 says, but you Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. And James chapter 2 verse 23 says, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Abraham says in verse 3, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. And God did not pass by his servant so as to say, My friend, you have found favor in my sight. But why? Why here? Why now in Genesis chapter 18? Well, friends, remember, God had called Abraham to the impossible. And so what we have here is a revelation of the heart of God behind the promises of God. Abraham, I know from a human level my promises sound impossible to you, but I will fulfill them because you, my friend, are on the receiving end of my grace that makes the impossible possible. Well, friends, there is another meal, isn't there, that reveals the heart of God to those who have found favor in his sight. And it is a meal that speaks of the matchless condescension of God. Another meal that reveals the heart of God behind the promises of God in the gospel of God. And it's the meal that we'll be able to partake of this evening. Only this meal is a greater meal. 
Because whereas in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham provided the food, here at this table, the Lord himself provides the food. His body is bread, and his blood as, uh, as wine, and his befriending of us is what causes faith to rise, despite the impossibility of all that God has called us to. God has called us to, to war against the flesh, to war against worldliness, to, to war against the devil. Well, we can't do that in our strength. You remember in the book of Revelation, the devil sweeps to the earth a third of the stars of heaven. We're just dust. We're like BB bullets trying to stop a train plowing towards us, but we have a friend. We have a friend in heaven, a friend who loved us and who gave himself for us and who condescended to our level and looked us in the eye so that we can sing, I have a friend whose faithful love is more than all the world to me. It is higher than the heights above and deeper than the soundless sea. So old, so new, so strong, so true. Before the earth received its frame, he loved me. Blessed be his name. And it's this friendship, isn't it, that makes us victorious even when we face the impossible dangers and toils and snares of life. There was this little boy who was walking with his father one day and he had his arm raised to hold his dad's hand and as they walked he fell down and then he got back up again and they walked again and then he fell down and again and so eventually he looked up to his dad and he said dad I have a better idea instead of me holding your hand why don't you hold my hand and when God's hold holds on to us with his friendship, we will walk in a way that was impossible when we were left to ourselves and to our own strength. You know, friends, one of the hardest things that the Lord calls us all to do is return to him when we've sinned. By nature, we're just like Adam and Eve, aren't we, who hide in the garden and want to cover ourselves with fig, fig leaves. But listen to what Jesus said to a church that wasn't where it ought to have been. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. And so friends, the meal before us tonight tells us of the welcome that we will receive when we come to the table in repentance and faith. He won't reject you. Instead, he will eat with you and he will fellowship with you as this divine friend. And so I want to encourage us all tonight, renew your friendship with the Lord at the table where his heart is revealed to you. I want us to see second, the divine promise. Just look with me at verse 9. Genesis 18, it says, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. 
The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Now, if you're wondering why God is promising here what he's promised so many times in our study of Genesis, the obvious answer is because there was still doubt and unbelief to the people that he was speaking. In the last passage, Abraham laughed. But Abraham's laugh was more of a laugh of amazement. An astonishment, Sarah seems to be laughing here in unbelief. But in God's gentle rebuke of Sarah's doubt comes that explosive verse, is anything too hard for the Lord? Abraham, Sarah, is anything too hard for the one who can rename you? Is anything too hard for the God who can say with absolute certainty, I will be here this time next year and you will have a child. Is anything too hard for the one who can ensure that an infertile woman long past the years of childbearing can bear a son? Anything too hard for the one who can see into Sarah's doubting soul and hear her laughter through the walls of a tent, even though she laughed to herself? Do you know what? I know a woman called Sarah. And Sarah... And her husband longed for a child, but it was not happening. And so they asked the church to pray. And 14 years later, it wasn't happening. And then one day, Sarah's husband came to the prayer meeting with some news to share. Nothing was too hard for the Lord. That even got into the point of saying, please don't pray that we'll have a child. Instead, we've accepted we won't have a child Pray that God would give us contentment in what he's answered. And then they had a child. Friends, left to ourselves, we face a greater impossibility than Sarah did. Because left to ourselves, we cannot bring life into our hearts. Sarah had been called and promised that she would bring life into the world. We are those who are unable to bring life into our own hearts. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were born dead in transgressions and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And yet because Sarah did conceive and bear a son, there was Isaac, and then there was Jacob, until eventually a young woman had a visit from an angel of the Lord, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, 
And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And because Jesus paid the debt and the penalty for all of our sins, we are those who can say, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So to those of you who are here this evening but are not yet with us, not yet believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, please can I say this, nothing is too hard for the Lord. He can do for you what he has done for us. Nothing is too hard. The God who can create life in Sarah's barren womb is the same God who can create life inside your dead heart. Your background doesn't matter. What matters is that you believe right now told you before about that pastor who'd preached at a church one night and he was making his way to the back of the room and he saw a little sheet of paper, a note that had been left for him and he picked it up and he opened it and the note just said, Pastor so-and-so, please will you pray for me? I am not a Christian, but I want to be more than anything else in the world. And you know what, friend? If you want this, then it is yours. Because by nature... And by choice, we don't want this. We don't want it at all. And the longing within your soul is evidence that God is doing in you what you cannot do yourself. Jesus once spoke to a corpse being carried to its grave. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Jesus once entered the the room of a little girl. You remember she was only 12 years old. And taking her by the hand, we read, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, 12 years of age. And they were all immediately overcome with amazement. And so do you really think, friend, that what Jesus did for that young boy being carried to his grave, what he did for that young girl of 12, and what Jesus has done for so many of us here tonight would be unable to do for you as well? No, nothing is too hard for the Lord. But to us believers, when we face the impossible, can I give you this word of counsel, remember the promises of God that He has already fulfilled in your life. You look at these challenges, you look at these obstacles, and there is no way, humanly speaking. But then your mind turns back to that situation where that situation similarly was impossible. That person, that that dead end road. But then God made a way when there was no way and you came away and 
With the words that you could draw out of your mouth, you said to yourself, well, nothing is too hard for the Lord. He can do what I can't do. And some of you have obstacles in your life right now that perhaps nobody else knows about. And perhaps you're ashamed as to how small your faith is. But to you, friend, can I say this? Get your eyes off your faith and get your eyes on your God. And remember all of his past mercies to you. Remember all of his past provisions to you. Remember all of his past fulfillments of his promises to you. And let faith rise again. If you look at your faith to try to muster faith, it will be like trying to pull out your eye to see how well it can see. That's what C.S. Lewis said. But instead, if you simply look straight ahead, if you look heavenward, and you look away from your faith, faith will begin to rise again. Friend, just because God isn't working as quickly as you want him to, it doesn't mean to say he's not working. It means to say he doesn't work by our timing and on our schedule. I heard recently a very famous theologian of a bygone era, he was pacing in his living room and a friend asked him, what's the matter? And he said, well, what's the matter is this. I am in a hurry and God is not. I am in a hurry and God is not. That's us, isn't it? That's me every day. Lord, There are churches for us to plant. There are pulpits for us to fill. There are people to be saved. And yet we just wait on God's timing. Think about this, friends. Between God's first call of Abraham and the birth of Isaac was 25 years. 25 years. Do you reckon you'd ever get to a point of thinking, it was just the pizza I ate last night, that... I can't have heard. I can't have heard the Lord. But no, nothing is too hard for the Lord. And if it seems too hard for you to believe, again, friend, reflect on the promises already fulfilled in your life. And then ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with His love He befriends thee and says to you what He says to Abraham. You are my friend. And it's not that he's welcome at our table. It's that we are welcome at his. And that's the great blessing, isn't it, of a communion service tonight. Amen.